0: God is sovereign. And yet we have, oh thank you, I might need that today. And Yet we act as human beings and this is a concept that sometimes is quite difficult for us to reconcile. I'm kind of on a series on anger, remember I'm preaching about King Saul and King David. And I got on a little bit of a rabbit trail, though, in, in the study. Um, I kept reading and, and it, I just kept coming back to different things. Um, and we're looking at the life of King Saul and David from 1 Samuel. Um, but I kept seeing this relationship to God's sovereignty which really made me look back at the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so I hope I can tie some things together or help bring some, um, maybe helps us see how the Westminster Confession of Faith tries to really teach us what the Bible says and helps us understand that. Uh, My text is 1 Samuel 21, verses one to 15. Let me read that. 1 Samuel 21, and I'll read the whole chapter, 1 to 15. Then David went to Nob, to Elimelech the priest. Elimelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? And David answered Elimelech the priest, The king charged me with a certain matter and said to me, No one is to know about anything about your mission and your instructions. For as my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever you can find." But the priest answered David, "'I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women.'" And David replied, Indeed, the women have been kept from us as usual whenever I set out. The men's things are holy even on missions that are not holy, how much more so today. So the priest gave him of the consecrated bread since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence which had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Now, one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Daog, the Edomite, Saul's head shepherd. And David asked Elimelech, don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's business was urgent. And the priest replied, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There is no sword here but that one." (laughs) David said, "'There is none like it. Give it to me.'" That day, David fled from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, "'Isn't this David, the king of the land?' Isn't he the one about whom they sing their dance? Isn't the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. And Achish said to his servants, look at the man, he's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you will have to bring this fella here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? This is the word of the Lord, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Each book, each chapter, each verse is there for our benefit, for our instruction, admonishment, and learning. And we pray that your spirit would do his work today in our hearts as we listen to and contemplate these events. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Akish, the king, may have gotten a little bit angry, but that's the only, it's an inference in this chapter. There's nothing about anger, but we'll talk about how anger did play a role in even in the, the events here. Anger is an emotion. I think the opposite of anger is meekness. Uh, but that's... That's a subject for another sermon. Um, It's an emotion when you think or... It's the emotion that when you think or believe your rights have been ignored or abused by someone, especially someone with more authority or power than you have, whether that's real or perceived. Think about anger when you get angry. You don't get angry over... Well, you might. But if you have the power and the authority to deal with someone's behavior, it's no sense getting angry. I'm not sure God ever gets angry like we get angry. He's in total control. He has the power and authority to ensure that his rights are never infringed upon and that's another reason God also doesn't raise his voice he doesn't yell he doesn't have to when he says jump people have to jump more or less right when we are angry we take actions we say things that are not godly or righteous James 1.19 says, "'Know this, my beloved brothers, "'let every person be quick to hear, "'slow to speak, slow to anger, "'for the anger of man does not produce "'the righteousness of God.'" And if if we could just keep that, how much better this world would be, you know? That one little, that one verse, Slow to speak, quick to hear, slow to anger. The Old Testament lesson that Jennifer read was Hannah's prayer or song, and it helps set the tone for what the writer of 1 Samuel is trying to communicate. I just want to read a couple of those verses from nine, verse 9 and 10. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked will be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Samuel is really about the kingship and first Saul but then David the promised king or the king that would his line would forever be uh, have the kingship over Israel and so in first Samuel 2 we hear that promise that God the Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed Now when God says he's going to do something, what happens? He does it. It happens. So when we get to today's events in 1 Samuel, um, if you looked at the chapter 20 before, there's this official falling out, more or less an official falling out with Saul and David and Saul's family and David's family, except for Jonathan. We see Saul getting more and more angry every time David's around and he sees him and he just is filled with anger. And, he, and um, after a while, David early on seems to be having a godly response but he gets pushed and pushed and pushed so far that in the chapter we read, 21, David, I think, is a little bit, um, he's gone off the rails a little bit, spiritually speaking. As I read these several chapters, I thought it was interesting that Saul is using a lot of his energy to prevent what God has proclaimed or ordained. What did God proclaim about Saul? Well in 1 Samuel 15, remember the story where Saul did not kill all the enemy And Samuel replies, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. When God says he's going to do something, what happens? He does it. It's going to happen. You can count on it. In chapter 20, Saul there's a culmination of Saul's anger when David doesn't come to this feast, the meal, for two days straight. And Saul, he has a fit of rage and even has that he even gets angry at Jonathan, his own son. And he curses Jonathan, and he curses um, the fact that Jonathan appears to be favoring David and not his own line, and not his father. So Keep that in mind. Actually, Jonathan leaves in a fit of rage after his dad accuses David and accuses him of not being loyal. He gets angry and leaves. I think Jonathan, of all the people in this story, maybe handles his anger in the best way. Meanwhile, David, I think in this time of weakness, he's been just, um, he's taken so much abuse from Saul, he gets pushed to his limit. And he starts using his energy scheming and trying to accomplish what God has already proclaimed and ordained will happen. But he wants to do it his own way. So Saul, trying to thwart what God said. God said, I'm taking the kingship away from you. And Saul is doing everything he can to hang on to it. David, God promised David, you're my king. For quite a while, David kind of let God do the actions and he kind of laid back. But in chapter 21, we see David now taking initiative on his own. And I think that's David trying to accomplish God's promises and God's plan, but doing it his own way. David recognizes he needs to take more precautions for his own life, and he doesn't tempt God by being careless. Well, God's promised, and so I don't have to worry. I don't have to. I don't have to lock the doors. I don't have to. He's going to protect me on driving on the road. I don't have to pay attention to the, you know, traffic signals. No, we. That's not how we're supposed to live. We are supposed to use common sense. We're supposed to use wisdom. Uh, Proverbs 14 says the wisdom of the prudent is to give thought to their ways. But the folly of fools is deception. We are to give thought to our ways. Is this the right thing? Is this a smart, smart steps? David starts to scheme how he can outwit Saul. He goes to Elimelech, the priest. And I'm not sure why he didn't go to Samuel because Samuel doesn't die until chapter 25. David has to lie about his situation. He tries to secure supplies to the point where he's taking the bread from, that's the show bread or the bread of the presence that's in front of the altar that's only for the priests to eat. He says, I'll I'll take it. And he lies about what his purpose is and why he's even there. Sounds like a real godly man, doesn't it? And he flees from the promised land to the land of the enemy. Now, why would the man who God promised was his king flee the promised land and go to the land of the enemy? (coughs) Sounds like maybe he, or I get the sense, maybe he just wasn't sure God was going to be able to protect him from Saul. And he needed to get farther away. That's David trying to accomplish God's, what God has ordained on his own. And when he gets to Gath, more lies, more deception. He is now trying to manage on his own wits. Did you notice that verse 7 in the, in the account about Elimelech. Now, one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Daog, the Edomite, Saul's chief shepherd. I wonder why that was in there. That was just kind of it's odd that that's in there, isn't it? Then David makes provisions for his family. Does he do that in Israel? No. He goes to the king of Moab and he gets his parents and his family to be under the protection of the king of Moab. So that's kind of strange. But remember, his great-grandmother was Ruth and she was a Moabitess, so he had some legitimate connections. But didn't he trust that God would protect in their own country? I think finally David realizes when he's um, Achish with, um, with, the, with the Philistines, that he's running out of, his wits are running short, and he's, he's getting in deeper and deeper. <laughs> and so he, he goes and he consults with a prophet, Gad, We don't know anything about Gad, but he was a prophet of God. And Gad said, go back to Judah. And that's in 22, verse 5. In Judah is where God's anointed king should be. And it is there that he wisely and prudently begins trusting God to fulfill what God has ordained. We read that in 1 Samuel 2. God is going to. God will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. As I studied these events, I kept wrestling with questions. Why are these events recorded here? Why are we told of the actions of Saul and David? And I I recalled some parts of the Westminster Confession of Faith. We studied the shorter catechism in our class, and we haven't studied the the confession itself. And we might have to do that some, I have down here some day, but it might be some months or certainly more than a week. But in chapter 5, subsection 4, this is what it says. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God are manifest in His providence to such an extent that this providence extends even to the first sin and to all other sins of angels and men. And this is not by mere permission, but by such permission as has joined with it most wise and powerful bounds. And in other ways, God directs and governs the sins of angels and men, regulating them in numerous and varied ways suited to His own purposes. So yet, that the sinfulness of sin proceeds only from the creature and not from God who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or the approver of sin." So that section talks about God as providentially ruling over the affairs of men. But if He is, how, how does sin fall into that? David lied. but God still was providential over David, right? Saul was out to get David, tried to kill him, accused him falsely. God still was providentially in control. There's a third character, actually, or, third group that are important players in this little bigger story. And when we look at, when we're going to look at the, those, that third character, and it will shed a little more light on God's providence, I hope. And this is Elimelech. He's the son of Ahitub and the son of Pihahas, the son of Eli. So Eli was his great-grandfather, or his grandfather. And remember what we learn about Eli in the first few chapters, and his sons. Some versions of the Bible call them scoundrels. They were, they did not, they were not righteous men. They abused the sacrifices, they abused the people. And so in 1 Samuel 2, 31, we read, Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eyes on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Pheanes, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and what is in my mind." And then again in 1 Samuel 3, when the Lord calls Samuel, the Lord came and stood calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel said, speak for your servant hears. Then the Lord said, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from the beginning to the end. And I will declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever. In 1 Samuel 22, I'll let you read it. Read 20, 21, 22, later today or tomorrow. Saul hears of David's visit to Elimelech, hears it from Daog, the Edomite, and Saul calls Elimelech to give an account. Saul wrongly accuses him of treasonous behavior, which Elimelech denies. And Elimelech also strongly endorses David and David's loyalty to the king. But Saul hears none of it, pronounces summary judgment, but none of his, Saul's servants are willing to carry out Saul's request to kill Elimelech, God's priest. But Deog, the Edomite, he's a descendant of Esau. That's, that's who the Edomites were. He's willing to do, do the job, and he cuts down about 80 priests, their families, their children, their wives, and their animals. So, why is that story in here? The judgment of God is done through the actions of sinful men. Saul, David, Deog. It's hard for us to understand or reconcile, but I don't believe we have a better way to understand it than what the Westminster Confession of Faith teaches. I think that's why it's helpful to study that document. God uses the actions of, the, of actors, he even directs these actors, men, to accomplish His own decrees. Yet the sinful acts by man, by actors, by agents, are not from God. That's difficult to understand. How can God act through the sinful acts of men? I don't know how to explain it except for what the Westminster Confession says. He does. How does that relate? So how does this relate to us? Because I thought it was a, I got into this, thought process, and was. I thought, but how does it relate to us at Stonebridge? What's the application for us? Saul trying to accomplish what God, trying to um, thwart what God said would happen, David trying to do what God said would happen, but on his, by his own power and his own wits, and Eli's descendants, judgment fell on them, like, just like God said it would fall. I've been reminded a little bit of this in terms of our search, our pastoral search. We're searching for a pastor. We believe a pastor is God's design for local churches. We think that's what God wants. We. I don't want us to be like David and try to force our man, the person we think, the process, just because it's God's will, we're going to do it our way. So I thought, I think that's an application for us, not to try to accomplish God's will in our way. We need to trust God, that God will provide the pastor, just like God promised to protect his king. We should put our trust and confidence in Almighty God, that since He's ordained pastors for local churches, He will bring it about. We can be confident that He will. And what about our individual lives? Do we act against God's decrees? Do we attempt to accomplish what God has decreed as good? by doing things our own way or in unscrupulous ways? Oh, I need to provide for my family. Are you putting in an honest day's work for an honest day's pay? Or are you trying to find unscrupulous ways to get finances for your family? That's one example. God will likely frustrate those efforts and we may end up having to pay some of the consequences of our actions. I think it's particularly true when we get angry. We may get frustrated and then we get angry and that's when we do things the wrong way. It doesn't, we can't thwart God's purposes and what's God, what God has ordained, even if we get angry and we sin. So why do it? Remember James 1, Swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I pray that our motives and our actions will be pure and honorable, And God-pleasing, let me pray.